I'm told that tens of thousands of prayer meetings are being held on this day. And for that, I'm deeply grateful. We are a nation under God, and I believe God intended for us to be free. It would be fitting and good, I think, if on each inaugural day in future years, it should be declared a day of prayer. Have you ever felt a visceral attraction to a politician? There is not a liberal America and a conservative America. There is the United States of America. I am your voice. Ask yourself if they're really telling the truth. This is a secret innuendo being leaked out there about me. I was honestly concerned that he might lie about the nature of our meeting. This is Subliminally Correct, a podcast where we examine all the ways politicians and newsmakers are using psychological tactics to influence you every single day. And now, join myself, Taylor Sherman, certified hypnosis instructor and executive coach, along with my co-host, Alex Dobranek, political consultant and certified consulting hypnotist, on this episode of Subliminally Correct. And welcome to another episode of Subliminally Correct. What's up for today, Alex? Today we're continuing our series on historical speeches and debates. And we're back for the second part of Ronald Reagan's historic inauguration in 1981. In this episode, Reagan is framing progress, leading the audience to big ideals, and describing exactly how he defines loyalty. So let's take a listen and see exactly what he has to say. We shall reflect the compassion that is so much a part of your makeup. How can we love our country and not love our countrymen? And loving them, reach out a hand when they fall, heal them when they're sick, and provide opportunity to make themselves sufficient so they will be equal in fact and not just in theory. Can we solve the problems confronting us? Well, the answer is an unequivocal and emphatic Yes. To paraphrase Winston Churchill, I did not take the oath I've just taken with the intention of presiding over the dissolution of the world's strongest economy. In the days ahead, I will propose removing the roadblocks that have slowed our economy and reduced productivity. Steps will be taken aimed at restoring the balance between the various levels of government. Progress may be slow, measured in inches and feet, not miles, but we will progress. It is time to reawaken this industrial giant, to get government back within its means, and to lighten our punitive tax burden. And these will be our first priorities, and on these principles there will be no compromise. On the eve of our struggle for independence, a man who might have been one of the greatest among the Founding Fathers, Dr. Joseph Warren, President of the Massachusetts Congress, said to his fellow Americans, our country is in danger, but not to be despaired of. On you depend the fortunes of America. You are to decide the important question upon which rests the happiness and the liberty of millions yet unborn act worthy of yourselves. Well, I believe we, the Americans of today, are ready to act worthy of ourselves. 
ready to do what must be done to ensure happiness and liberty for ourselves, our children, and our children's children. And as we renew ourselves here in our own land, we will be seen as having greater strength throughout the world. We will again be the exemplar of freedom and a beacon of hope for those who do not now have freedom. Now, before we get to breaking down this first part of the speech, and since we know you enjoy this type of commentary, this deep dive into political persuasion that we do each week, we'd like you to consider supporting our mission here. So time is running out to support the show this month, which means that it's now time to chip in. So your support really matters. Each month we have server costs as well as the time spent developing the show. And to safeguard our independence, we never run ads. So our podcast is available for everyone and funded by listeners. So if you appreciate our efforts, please take a moment just to keep the show on the air, ad-free and growing. You can find the link down in the show notes as well as going to our website at subliminallycorrect.com. Up there in the upper right-hand corner, click that link that says support us and you can support the show for as little as just a few dollars and keep the show on the air and continuing to grow. So in this first clip here, what I really love and what really stood out to me here is the phrases that he used when talking about the progress that we're going to make. And he says this, Progress may be slow, measured in inches and feet, not miles, but we will progress. Now, I want you to pay attention to whenever a politician says progress may be slow. And what they're doing here is setting a very ambiguous definition of success. If the situation doesn't get any better at all, the politician can still claim success because they never defined how slow things would progress. And if things move rapidly, then they can claim success as well, because, of course, things improved. And if the situation gets worse, then, you know, they sort of have an easy pivot to another common political turn of phrase that people use, that things will get worse before they get better, which also sets another similar ambiguous benchmark and timetable there, because there's no actual timeline here, and that at any point along the future they can claim that they were correct in their prediction. So be very careful when any politician says something like that. Now, when he talks about loving your country and not loving your countrymen, what does he mean by this exactly? He uses this alliteration to sort of imply that it's obvious, you know, what the answer should be, that, of course, we can't love our country and not our countrymen. And then he sort of goes on to define what this love means uh, reaching out a hand when they fall, healing them when they're sick and providing opportunities to make them more self-sufficient. And, you know, this is what he defines as love, but that might not be the definition for everybody here as far as, you know, what a person should receive from their government or from their other countrymen. But the, the fact that he sort of tags this on as the definition to the first phrase is sort of that ladder of engagement he's, he's getting you to buy in here. So first, you've already bought in. How can you love your country and not your countrymen? Of course, you need to love your countrymen. And then he's able to define what that love actually means. And since you've already agreed to his premise, this other thing must also be true. And he's using these generic visual metaphors and a little more biblical or divine references here 
to take that listener into more receptive headspaces. And really, what does any of this actually mean in concrete terms? What policies or, or actions is he prescribing here? We don't really know. And it doesn't really matter because he's not actually saying anything. But rather getting people to buy into his generic sort of ideals and values. And that's what's really important to getting somebody on to supporting a politician. Yeah. And then he starts off quoting these founding fathers, right? He quotes Winston Churchill, well, paraphrases him. He says, I did not take the oath I've just taken with the intention of presiding over the dissolution of the world's strongest economy. And I just found that interesting that he would actually quote a leader of another nation talking about the world's strongest economy. So what is he saying, that the UK has the strongest economy and not the US? Well, I don't know, but it certainly seems that he's he's doing that. So he's using this callback to these founding fathers, um, which is this common tactic used by politicians that exploits a logical fallacy. So nothing necessarily makes any founding father any more wise or intelligent than anyone alive today. But somehow we must treat their words with reverence because it was a long time ago, right? It's like, oh, they said it all the way back then in those years that, again, turned out right in retrospect, right? Um, it, it must be true. It must be true what they said back then because they said it in Old English. Well, if they say it in those kind of words, then we know that people were a lot wiser back then. And then he's using these quotes as a callback by changing the words to reference the moment that we're in now, as if history is repeating itself and that 1981 was somehow similar to the Revolutionary War or somehow similar to the founding of the country. And then he's using this to talk about the renewal of America that's just beginning here with his administration. And so we hear him really bridging time in that way, talking about how you know things were this way then, this is how it's being now, and look toward the future. Again, that three-part structure that we've talked about with other speeches, um, like our episodes that we did on Obama's speech. Now, in this next clip here, we're going to turn to foreign policy and America's example and power abroad. Let's take a listen to what he has to say here. To those neighbors and allies who share our freedom, we will strengthen our historic ties and assure them of our support and firm commitment. We will match loyalty with loyalty. We will strive for mutually beneficial relations. We will not use our friendship to impose on their sovereignty for our own sovereignty is not for sale. As for the enemies of freedom, those who are potential adversaries, they will be reminded that peace is the highest aspiration of the American people. We will negotiate for it, sacrifice for it. We will not surrender for it now or ever. Our forbearance should never be misunderstood. Our reluctance for conflict should not be misjudged as a failure of will. When action is required to preserve our national security, we will act. We will maintain sufficient strength to prevail if need be. 
knowing that if we do so, we have the best chance of never having to use that strength. Above all, we must realize that no arsenal or no weapon in the arsenals of the world is so formidable as the will and moral courage of free men and women. It is a weapon our adversaries in today's world do not have. It is a weapon that we as Americans do have. Let that be understood by those who practice terrorism and prey upon their neighbors. All right, so here we have Reagan talking about how he's redefining what it actually means to be peaceful. So as for the enemies of freedom, those who are the potential adversaries, they're going to be reminded that peace is our highest aspiration. And we're not going to negotiate for peace. We're not going to sacrifice for it. We're not going to surrender for it. Which is kind of a funny thing, right? It's like in order to get peace, you have to have war, right? So he's saying that war is the gateway or the pathway to peace. So in order to get peace, you have to have war. And then he builds up this whole idea about how, well, that's why we're going to continue to have a large army. And that's why we are going to continue to build up our reserves and, you know, that our enemies shouldn't mistake our lack of action or our forbearance of action right now as for weakness. But actually, they should just recognize that that's actually our strength. And so notice how he's giving himself so many outs here, so many possibilities to basically do whatever he wants. He doesn't want to act. Hey, that's strength. He does act. Well, that's just the gateway and the pathway to peace. And then here, kind of as he's summing this idea up, he talks about how the most formidable weapon in the American arsenal is not the weapons of war. It's not the things that you might be familiar with within a military arsenal. No, no weapon is so formidable as will and moral courage of the American people. And so think about this. He's taking here a mental construct, something that is a, an idea, and he's mapping that idea into a physical reality. So he's saying, hey, if you believe in this idea, that's actually as strong as the physical reality. And it's, you know, it, it, it helps him to be able to define his position however he wants to define it. There are so many ways that you could argue that that isn't necessarily, you know, true or effective given his actual policy points, you know, but again, this is the types of things that go into these types of speeches because he wants to be able to give a broad vision empowering people to what though? What exactly is he empowering them for? What, what is he saying they actually have the power to have? Well, they have will and they have moral courage. That's great. But how does that actually become enacted? It's all unspecified, and because of that, it gives him freedom to do whatever he wants and also freedom that no matter what happens, to point to that as a victory. Yeah, and what Taylor has sort of touched on a little bit here that you know I'd really like to dig in on is that idea here of the enemies of freedom. So he starts off by talking about matching loyalty with loyalty with our allies to strive for mutually beneficial relations. Um, and so, you know, he's really talking to Eastern Europe here and people who might be considering what side to join um, between the Soviets and America. 
Uh, but then he turns to the quote-unquote enemies of freedom here, to those who are potential adversaries. This is the uh, olive branch to our allies, followed by sort of the stick to our the sword to our enemies or potential enemies and giving them a choice here. But he doesn't just say that, you know, people who are potential adversaries, he calls them the enemies of freedom. And he, that's sort of, are the... Would anybody self-describe themselves as an enemy of freedom? Is there is that really a fair characterization of anybody on Earth? Well, maybe and maybe not. But you see he uses a nominalization here for the enemies of freedom, but he doesn't use it for our allies. There are no friends of freedom. It's really here a way for him to create that boogeyman, that nominalization um, for for the American people to sort of turn an ambiguous or amorphous set of, you know, others and other countries into a singular enemy. And, you know, that's something that's been used later, for example, with the uh, President Bush and the axis of evil. Things like that are able to really take something that might be ambiguous or might be a changing group of people or a moving set of people for example terrorists around the world in different countries iraq or afghanistan that are part of this axis of evil and that might change from month to month from year to year and then there's this enemies of freedom which might be one country one day or another country another day or they might flip they might flop and it's a way for him to just create this broad characterization of anybody who might oppose us that he can redefine later. And again, he sort of takes this whole idea here of the individual power of regular people to, you know, stand up and that, you know, you're a hero and I'm a hero and everybody's a hero. That language that we talked about in the last episode, he's able to flatter everybody into uh you know jumping on board with this patriotic nationalism and divine intervention all right and in this next clip here we're going to be listening to him talking about the prayer meetings that are being held on inauguration day let's take a listen i'm told that tens of thousands of prayer meetings are being held on this day and for that i'm deeply grateful we are a nation under god and I believe God intended for us to be free. It would be fitting and good, I think, if on each inaugural day in future years, it should be declared a day of prayer. This is the first time in our history that this ceremony has been held, as you've been told, on this west front of the Capitol. Standing here, one faces a magnificent vista of this open mall are those shrines to the giants on whose shoulders we stand. Directly in front of me, the monument to a monumental man, George Washington, father of our country. A man of humility who came to greatness reluctantly. He led America out of revolutionary victory into infant nationhood. Off to one side, the stately memorial to Thomas Jefferson, a declaration of independence flames with his eloquence. And then beyond the reflecting pool, the dignified columns of the Lincoln Memorial. Whoever would understand in his heart 
the meaning of America will find it in the life of Abraham Lincoln. Beyond those moments, those monuments to heroism, is the Potomac River, and on the far shore, the sloping hills of Arlington National Cemetery, with its row upon row of simple white markers, bearing crosses or stars of David. They add up to only a tiny fraction of the price that has been paid for our freedom. Each one of those markers is a monument to the kind of hero I spoke of earlier. Their lives ended in places called Bellow Wood, the Argonne, Omaha Beach, Salerno, and halfway around the world on Guadalcanal, Tarawa, Porkchop Hill, the Chosin Reservoir, and in a hundred rice paddies and jungles of a place called Vietnam. Under one such marker lies a young man, Martin Treptow, who left his job in a small town barber shop in 1917 to go to France with the famed Rainbow Division. There on the Western Front, he was killed trying to carry a message between battalions under heavy artillery fire. We're told that on his body was found a diary. On the flyleaf, under the heading, My Pledge, he had written these words. America must win this war. Therefore, I will work, I will save, I will sacrifice, I will endure. I will fight cheerfully and do my utmost as if the issue of the whole struggle depended on me alone. The crisis we are facing today does not require of us the kind of sacrifice that Martin Treptow and so many thousands of others were called upon to make. It does require, however, our best effort and our willingness to believe in ourselves and to believe in our capacity to perform great deeds, to believe that together, with God's help, we can and will resolve the problems which now confront us. And after all, why shouldn't we believe that? We are Americans. God bless you and thank you. Thank you very much. All right, so here we have the summation of his inauguration address. And just like many of these summations, you know, they're really designed to be very poignant, to be able to call back through history to all of those wonderful, heartfelt moments that really, you know, make us kind of melt a little bit and make us kind of reflect upon ourselves and, you know, our places within the world. And he does that here, you know. So artfully, you know, as this speech was written, you know, he's talking about all of these really enumerating all of these different places within history. You know, he has this callback to what it was like, you know, here beyond the reflecting pool, the dignified columns of the Lincoln Memorial. And then beyond that, the Potomac River and then the National Cemetery and, you know, talking about here how each marker belongs to a hero. And then, you know, he talks about the heroes that he spoke of earlier. So, well, you know, those were heroes in war, but here are heroes, you know, at home more domestically. And it's it's really interesting how he kind of links all of this here together and that as he 
talks through those different places. He, you know, he talks through the just naming off these things, that enumeration of the of the places that America has been in fought wars. It kind of flashes the image maybe of those pictures of of the places that that were there. Maybe you'd heard about them, you know, and then he ends, of course, on Vietnam. And he talks about that, which is, you know, the, the more recent conflict that um, has occurred. And then he tells us the story about Martin Treptow and the story of this guy. And, you know, he kind of builds up the story, talks to us, you know, a lot about it, about who he is and what he went through. You know, he came from a small town barber shop in 1917 to go to France with the famed Rainbow Division. So think about this. I mean, now you got this kind of idea. Oh, this is like this guy in this small town barbershop, and now he's off in France. And then, you know, how did he how did he do this? Well, he wrote these words, and how Reagan delivers these words, of course, is very, very poignant. He gives this this speech, you know, talking about how I'm going to sacrifice for America. And then he ends this whole thing talking about, again, that American exceptionalism, talking about this idea of, you know, we can and we will resolve the problems which confront us. And after all, why shouldn't we believe that? We are Americans. And that's why. And so he kind of gives that that idea and, you know, kind of builds up this this idea of this is who we are. This is why we have the power. And this is what he's been doing here throughout the whole speech is tying that physical reality into the moral or the spirit or the will or the courage or the dignity of that person and then making that then the thing that we can rely upon and to set our ground upon. Yeah, it's really interesting, both what Taylor just talked about, about, again, you know, deifying the individual as, you know, the the example of American divinity here, but then also, his references here at the beginning of the, you know, he's told of tens of thousands of prayer meetings that are being held on that day, uh, and he's deeply grateful, a nation under God, and I believe God intended us for us to be free. Language like that right there here, he's using to compare the entire inaugural ceremony to prayer itself, or a divine action, or perhaps he's just like God himself, it's a sort of an, an implicit comparison there because really, what do these prayer meetings have to do with the inauguration exactly? And uh, he's told of these prayer meetings. Do we actually know that these prayer meetings are actually happening? And by whom? And are they actually related to the election and the inauguration? Or are they just, you know, I'm sure at any given moment there are tens of thousands of prayer meetings happening across the country and perhaps the world. But he's able to just manage to relate the two events um, as if they're related in the same and, and divine in and of themselves. And then he takes that and sets it aside and moves into talking about the monuments that he's looking at. So George Washington and Thomas Jefferson and Lincoln. And in just a few short phrases, he's now compared his inaugural address there to uh, to God and prayer and uh, George Washington and Thomas Jefferson, all our founding fathers right there as, you know, these are all heroes. These are all heroic events right here. And then drills it right down to that 
heroism of the individual with the war memorials and the graveyard there, Arlington Cemetery. And, you know, it's really interesting the way, you know, what is the point exactly of him using these phrases and to making these references here if they're not to relate to the specific event that is happening right there and to sort of drag the listener's mind into a more broad and historical context and to then link those historical people and icons to himself and to his inauguration and to this moment that we're now in. And, you know, that's what's really fascinating about what he does here. All right. I think that's all the time that we've got for today, everyone. Thanks for joining us here this week. And remember that if you love the show, remember to support the show. You can find the link in the show notes as well as going to our website at subliminallycorrect.com, clicking that support us link. We really appreciate your support. Also remember to rate and review us on iTunes. Five stars, that's the one that you want to do with the iTunes Apple Podcasts app. Um, And you can also follow us on Twitter and Facebook. On Twitter, we're at SubliminalPod. Tweet at us, let us know what you thought about the show, and we will see you again next week. (laughs) 